You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. So glad to have you with me. It is episode 45, which means I'm very near having done this every week for a year. I've podcasted before, but never every week for almost a year. So we're going to hold out. We're going to do a full season of 52 episodes, turn around, and start right up again. I think that's what we're going to do. I love podcasting. I enjoy doing it. Um, It's just fun. I'm an introvert. It's nice to sit in a room and talk to myself. I'd probably be doing that anyway. But also, I've been told many times that I have a face for radio. Now, that has never been more proven than this week. Because, I don't know if you do a lot of Zoom, but I teach over Zoom quite a bit, uh, Sunday mornings and midweeks. And what uh, I've discovered is Mac computers have terrible cameras. They just do. Great computers, great hardware, except for the camera. Cameras are always terrible. Everything looks fuzzy. I've got an old uh, um, iMac. Camera's bad. I've got a new MacBook Pro. Camera's bad. And so one night I'm laying in bed thinking, I have this incredible camera in my phone. If there was only a way I could plug that into my computer and use it as my webcam, well, it turns out you can't. There's four or five different ways you can do it. So I go and I do that. And Sunday morning I go to teach and Zoom opens up. And holy cow, I'm crystal clear. Like, it's so sharp and so definitive. I'm almost like a hologram. And I realized I probably look better fuzzy. Like, I don't know that I want to show everybody everything. It might have been a mistake to try this. But anyway, that's where we're at. Last week, I shared a message called The Mess We Are In, talking about our nation's blood guilt for not protecting the unborn and, in fact, helping finance abortion in many ways. This week, I laid out some practical responses to the mess that we are in, ways that we as a church can raise the water level of the value of life and actually encourage and enable people to do the right thing. I hope you find it helpful, and just be glad you're only listening and not having to watch me. Uh, I want to thank everybody for being brave enough to come back uh, after last week. Last week was was a little bit heavy, and I told you at the beginning of last week that it was not one that I was going to be able to tie a real tidy bow on. I uh, actually had somebody reach out to me this week and told me, I don't want a bow on it. Uh, I actually want to wrestle with it for myself. And so if you missed last week, you may want to go back and, and listen to that. As we talked about the idea of the shedding of innocent blood on our own land and what that means for us in the way of responsibility. Uh, it, our greatest problem in our nation right now is not a virus. Uh, it's not a politician. It's the collective guilt of the shedding of innocent blood done with our nation's blessing and with our own funding. And politically, uh, I don't see a clear answer without a response from the church. The left wants to continue to fund it and keep it going. The right says they'd like to stop it and stop the funding, but they never seem to do that. And so I don't know that the right or the left is serving the nation very well when it comes uh, to the shedding of innocent blood or the ending uh, of human lives in the womb. Somebody told me um, years ago, they were a little concerned about my passion for this uh, issue. And they said the reason was they didn't know how they felt about having an activist pastor. And I I kind of had to laugh at him because to me, the opposite of that is an inactivist. And who wants an inactivist pastor? That sounds terrible. Uh, We are not called to inaction. When things matter to the Lord, we bear witness, we testify to what is right, 
And then we try and bring peace and restoration in those areas. And so last week, I told you that this week would be kind of the second half of the message, and I would focus on our responsibility in this crisis. I kind of needed the entire week last week to lay out what the crisis was and left it without any forward action or positive response, and I don't like doing that. You can really generate a lot of preaching content focusing on what is wrong. And I say that because there's a lot wrong with the world. You can talk about it for a long time, but I think the Lord is looking for a witness that speaks more about than what just is what is wrong, but actually offers solutions to the world. And in regards to the value of unborn life, there are periods in American church history where we have not talked much about solutions. We have talked about outrage and guilt and awareness, but we haven't ministered to people in their pain. And sometimes even the things that we have done to raise awareness and to reach people have been very hurtful. I'm talking about the pro-life movement itself. There are good-hearted pro-life people that I would not necessarily want to emulate because I thought they have caused more uh, hurt in people's hearts at the wrong time. They remind me a little bit of the John Brown character we talked about last week who had a very just cause in the ending of slavery, but he acted out in an unjust manner and triggered a civil war. Uh, Because of some of those efforts, when I talk about addressing the issue of the unborn and trying to make a difference, there are maybe even some among us that put up a defense mechanism and say, I I don't want to get involved in this. I I saw this the first time around. I saw this in the 80s, or I saw this in the 90s. I don't want to be involved. It's because they have seen efforts from the past that seem to hurt people more than help. In 2005, we moved back from Washington, D.C., and we had been involved there in praying for the unborn on the steps of the Supreme Court. It was not a protest. It was a prayer meeting. We met daily there. Sometimes there were five of us. Sometimes there were as many as 100. But uh, no signs, no bullhorns, none of the things that you come to associate with the pro-life movement. We were simply praying as a prophetic witness to the court and to stand before the Lord and say, these children matter. It was not confrontational. It was not harsh. When we decided to move back, another pro-life ministry told us, hey, we have a box truck that is going back to Kansas City, and if you want, we'll haul your things. Well, faced with the opportunity of not having to pay for a U-Haul, I jumped on that. I said, absolutely, if you'll haul our things, that'd be great. Now, we this is how I remember it. Now, it's been 15 years. I don't remember seeing the truck. I think what happened is interns loaded it. Maybe we we left a day or two early, but I do not remember seeing the truck in advance. I remember getting to Kansas City and two days later, getting a call from the people saying, hey, we're coming into town and we'll bring the truck to your house. And I said, that's great. So they backed the truck up. I hear the beep and I go out into the driveway and realize that the side of this truck is covered with um, uh, grotesque images of unborn babies who have been aborted. And it's awful. Now, I understand their motivation. They're trying to bring awareness to this and try and force the conversation with people who maybe not want to have the conversation. But now this thing is parked in my driveway. And my neighbors are coming out and looking at at the truck. And I unload this truck as fast as I can. And then they turn to me and say, hey, we have to run some errands. Can we leave the truck here? It was the longest afternoon in my life, because even though I agreed with the idea of raising awareness, I knew that there were moms and dads driving down the street and being forced to have conversations that they really weren't ready to have because of a truck in my driveway. 
So hear my heart. When I talk about coming against this spirit of death over our nation, I want to be solutions-oriented, not just outrage-oriented. Yes, I'm outraged, but I don't want the primary encounter for people to have when I talk about the unborn to be one of outrage. I want to offer logical, positive, feasible, loving solutions to people that save lives and give expectant women hope for a clean conscience for the rest of their life and post-abortive moms and dads a sense of grace that allows them to process their mistakes and walk in victory for the rest of their life. The kingdom of God is not one of outrage. It's one of power and it's one of healing, but it's not one of continual anger. We tend to make a tactical mistake of thinking that once people have made a mistake, then that's the perfect time to teach a lesson, right? I mean, dads are particularly geared this way. Child falls out of a tree, breaks an arm, mom calls the ambulance, but dad is thinking, all right, let's talk about gravity. Let's talk about what you did here. We're not always necessarily solutions oriented. We want to make a point, and that is not always helpful when people are in pain. Jesus, the ultimate teacher, was really oriented towards solutions to problems, not always making a point of the fact that the people caused the problem themselves. And I want to use Jesus' actions as a guide when it comes to talking about the unborn and ministering to people in crisis. Matthew 14, 15, and 17, there's a situation where people get into a crisis, and it's their own fault. It says, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to the villages to go and buy food for themselves. Now, understand, this is a crisis of their own doing. It is the equivalent of running out of gas when your gas gauge works, okay? You've got a 16th of a tank of gas. You drive by a station. When you run out of gas, that's on your own. These people came to hear Jesus knowing that dinner was coming. They stayed too long. Now there's no dinner. If many of us were Jesus, we would have started preaching on being prepared. We would have started preaching on being responsible. We would have said, verily, verily, you're a responsible adult. Should have brought your own lunch. Now you've got to walk to Chipotle. This is up to you. Jesus, though, chose to offer solutions, not just prove his point. Verse 16 says, but Jesus said, they need not go away. You need to give them something to eat. And they said, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. So faced with a crisis of their own doing, Jesus tried to find solutions for them. Most of the focus of the church in regard to abortion has been focused on outrage rather than on solutions. Yes, it's outrageous, but if our outrage doesn't drive us to answers, the church just gets mean. And as people who likewise have blood on our hands from the communal guilt of what has happened for decades, in looking for solutions, we also address our own hearts. In offering solutions, we give our outrage or our protest some element of authority. Most of you know that when uh, we were praying for the unborn. Somebody told us at one point, you don't want these children any more than the mothers do. And we realized that for our family, we had to step into adoption, and that would actually give some equity to our call for the unborn. Now, don't panic. Not everyone is supposed to adopt. We'll talk about it a little bit this morning, but that's not what everyone's call is. That's what ours was. But I want to give you four areas of response this morning on the issue of abortion. And of these four, they're going to go from big picture down to real practical things that we're going to do in the next couple of weeks. So uh, as you're writing, if you're going, yeah, that's kind of ethereal, stay tuned. There will be, we'll get to something that, that you can, can physically do. Number one is to revalue the role of fathers in our culture. 
Kelsey and I, uh, some of you know, some of you may not know, are involved at Zoe's House, an adoption agency. And Kelsey and I, or our staff, over the years, have worked with more young women that, than you can imagine who have found themselves pregnant and are considering abortion or have considered abortion before coming to us. They come from the website. They come from Facebook. They come from crisis, crisis pregnancy centers. Uh, we've gotten Facebook messages that said, literally said, hey, I'm in prison. Can somebody, or I'm in jail. Can somebody visit me? All of these things. And probably the thing that they feel the strongest in that moment when they reach out to us is that they feel alone. Because the person who was there at the moment of conception is not planning to be there at the moment of birth. Or if they're involved, they're in no way prepared to really be a father. The young woman has no choice. Motherhood is coming for her. But the young man can slip into the shadows, and he can do so with very little guilt because we have minimized the role of fathers in our society. We don't expect much. It is the design of the Lord that a father would be the picture to a child of the compassion and love of God. That's how God designed it. Psalm 103.13 says, As the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That is a father's role. Not to say it can't be done by a mom, but it's uniquely identified as have to, uh, supposed to be done by a father. Our culture has reduced the importance of the role of a father to primarily the punchline to a joke. Dads are primarily the butt of a joke rather than a person to be honored or someone who is expected to act in an honorable way. And we can see how the presence of a baby's father makes a difference to a young woman who is pondering abortion or pondering carrying her child full term. But the presence of a father, even if it's just a father figure, makes a difference in, enti in an entire community. Researchers at Stanford and Harvard and the Census Bureau worked together and found that in neighborhoods where poor boys do well, one of the determining factors was a high rate of fatherhood in the community. The presence of fathers in the neighborhood, even if they're not in that child's home, makes a huge difference. William Julius Wilson is a Harvard sociologist, and he wrote, this is a path-breaking finding. They're not talking about the direct effect of a boy's own parents' own marital status. They're talking about the presence of fathers in a given census tract. The role of the presence of fathers in the life of a child is powerful, even if it's not that child's father. Recently, I read an interview uh, by Matthew McConaughey, and I don't know if you enjoy him or not. I like his acting, and I can never quite tell legitimately if he's a goofball or he's very profound because he seems to go back and forth at times. But they're asking him in this interview, what did you want to do or what did you want to be when you were a child? And without even thinking about it, he said, a father. And they said, well, no, no, no. What, I mean, like, you want to be a policeman? What, what did you? And he goes, no, no, I want to be a father. And he goes on to say, in my eight-year-old mind, the common denominator, beside respect for elders, of why I was saying sir to men was they were all fathers. I remember it going through my eight-year-old mind. Oh, that's when you've made it. That's the pinnacle of life. That's success. I knew from that day I wanted to be a father. Now, I'm not saying that the only way to make it or be successful or be a true man is to be a father. Of course, there are plenty of honorable men who do not have children who deserve the title sir. But how far have we come that we think it's quaint 
that an eight-year-old boy thinks that fathers are ultimately to be respected. So how do we revalue the idea of fatherhood in our own community? Just a couple of uh, real practical things. Fathers, be available to others' children. Remember that study from Harvard. It doesn't even have to be their own dad to be the influence. Today, when we're out milling around out at Peterson's and we're standing out around the fire, fathers, let me encourage you, pay attention to, notice and interact with other, people, other people's children. They need to see a father in their community. Another way is mothers, please show honor in the home. I know he can be a knucklehead, but you married him and you've got children with him. And those children are going to respond to him largely based on how you respond to him. And oftentimes, if things go wrong in their eyes, it's mom who wins. And in the reality, everybody loses. Moms, show honor to fathers. Settle your differences somewhere else. Another thing we can do as a community is encourage young dads. Make being a dad something that somebody wants to be. So that when somebody in the community discovers they're going to be a dad and they didn't anticipate being a dad, they rise to the occasion. This is how important this is. If we don't see fathers step up, we are going to suffer the consequences far beyond what we're already seeing. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Following Malachi, there is a 400-year period of silence. No prophetic word, no revelation. Like the prophets gather every morning. Did anybody get a dream? Anybody get anything? No, nothing for 400 years. And one of the very last things that is spoken to the people of Israel through the prophet is Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send to you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Some versions say with a curse. Understand that this happens, and then for 400 years, the Lord says nothing through his prophets. Imagine if the Lord had not spoken since 1620. The, like the day the Mayflower sailed, the Lord quit interacting with people and said, I've said what I've said. What would we do? We would go back and revisit what he said before he got silent. Now, with the current state of the family, this idea of fathers turning to children is going to take some creative fathering because not every child who needs a father has access to one. For children to have a picture of fathers to turn to, we're going to need men who become fathers to children that need them in their community. I'm believing that there will be a fathering movement in the church, and if there's not, that means that some element of our undoing is our own doing, and we will be under a curse because of it. What if that 400 years of silence was a picture of the curse, the lack of the presence of God? I want all that God has, but that means fathers need to find their place in the lives of children, and every mother alive says amen, because she knows how powerful it would be, even young unmarried women with an unexpected pregnancy, cries out for her child to have a father. And the church can step up and help that by revaluing the idea of fathers. The second thing we can do, and again, I said these will, these will get from, uh, from more ethereal down to the very practical. The second thing we can do is to mourn the loss with those 
who chose to abort. Mourn the loss along with those who chose to abort. I was so grateful for Diana last week when we prayed at the end of our time of teaching and how she prayed specifically for those who'd been involved in abortion and who had made that choice in the past. Because we've got to remind ourselves, if there's grace for anything, there's grace for everything that we bring to the Father. And that is a very common thing in our culture. One in four women undergo an abortion at some point in their life. And the statistics within the church are inconsequential compared to outside the church. There's almost no difference. Now, we don't know about that. We don't think about that. Part of that is conviction because they've kept that internally. But part of it is also how they were treated or how they have been treated since they've aborted the child. There are many who were in the church or entered the church after their abortion, and they've never been allowed to talk about it or to heal because they've always felt it was the one thing that no one would get past. Let me tell you, if this is a part of your story or it's a part of the story of someone you know, it is forgivable. If there's grace for anything, there's grace for this. Psalm 103, 12 and 13 tells us, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who forgive him. And there are no limits on this thing. He extends forgiveness for whatever we've done. If you are post-abortive or you know someone who is, and you've been wrestling with it, two things. Let me encourage you, talk and pray with someone about it. Go to someone that you trust and say, I just, I need to unload this and I need to pray with you about it. And the second thing, let me give you a resource of a very, very practical little booklet. Uh, I don't recognize, uh, I don't recognize, I don't recommend a ton of books, uh, but if, if abortion is a part of your story or a part of someone in your family, I cannot recommend this, this book more highly. Uh, many of you know the name Frank Peretti. You've read a lot of uh, his fiction. He wrote a lot of uh, fiction in the 80s and 90s about spiritual warfare. But before Frank Peretti was Frank Peretti, before anybody knew who he was, he wrote a short story. And before it was ever published as a book, it became a radio drama for Focus on the Family. And after that, the book got published. It's very thin. You can probably read it maybe in an hour in one setting pretty easily. It's called Tilly. And it is a fictional story of a woman who is visited in a dream by a young girl who's about eight years old. And this little girl lives in very strange circumstances. She seems to live in this ethereal world where she doesn't really know what her birthday is. She doesn't really know what her name is. But she lives in this dream world with Jesus. And over the course of the story, it becomes aware that uh, you become aware that the, the girl in the dream that she's dreaming about is a child that she aborted eight years ago. And when they discover that, and this child extends forgiveness to her mother, because the child knows Jesus better than the mother does, it is incredibly moving and healing. Let me encourage you, go to Amazon, find it. It's, I don't know, maybe eight bucks in hardcover or something like that. But it is a fantastic story of healing. I think you'd find it deeply moving, but deeply encouraging. Kelsey and I have, have produced it as a play a, a couple of different times. And uh, when it is done, uh, there's, we always have counselors up, up front and, and people receiving prayer. Super moving. It's called Tilly by Frank Peretti. We need to hold the line on the shedding of innocent blood, but we need to extend forgiveness for the past, or we are as guilty of murder in our hearts 
as those that we do not forgive. So we've got to extend love to those who have walked this path and mourn with them because they really have lost someone. We revalue fathers. We extend forgiveness to post-abortive moms and dads. Another thing we need to do is to recognize the role of godly government. Now, some of you would say it's a bad time to talk about politics. Others would say it's always a bad time to talk about politics. But there are far too many opinions and not enough prayer in the church when it comes to politics. And it causes a good number of people to just check out. They don't want to think about it at all. And one of the things that we hear when we talk about godly government is, well, you know, you can't govern morality. You can't make people want to do the right thing. That's absolutely true. The purpose of government is not to make people want to do the right thing. It is to protect the vulnerable. You will never make people want to do the right thing. If you look out your picture window and there's a man beating another man with a club, you going out and stopping him doesn't change his heart. But you do save the life of the guy who's getting beat down in the street. And the purpose of government isn't to change people's hearts. It is to protect people. And you can't govern morality, but you can govern morally. You can make decisions about government from a place of morality. And God never surrenders leadership or his sense of government over the earth. That's always in the realm of the Lord. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight says, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over nations. Now, you may be looking at the state of our nation and saying, how do you reconcile those two things? How do you reconcile that God extends kingship over the earth and we have a mess here? He does that in part by honoring the wishes of those whom he governs. He gives us what we ask for. In the current climate, that's a little bit scary, but this is why this is so important. And this is why I would encourage Christians, if they feel a call to it, to get involved in politics. Because Psalm 14, 34 says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So if we want to see righteousness in our nation, that means righteous people need to get involved. In so many places around the world, Christians are persecuted. They can't own property. They can't work. They can't defend themselves. It's very hard for us to even imagine. We live in a world where a believer can rise to authority in government, and we desperately need for it to happen. The greatest accomplishments of government around the world through history have happened when believers somehow got involved. Many of you know the story of William Wilberforce was elected to British Parliament in 1780. But the pivotal day in his life didn't happen for five years later when he gave his life to Christ. Those who knew him say it changed the purpose of his life. William Hogue wrote in the biography of Wilberforce that his conversion changed some of his habits. But I love this. It says it didn't change his nature. He remained outwardly cheerful. In other words, he came to Jesus, but he was still happy. What a, what a great picture there. But it changed some of his convictions. And a few years later, he came into contact with abolitionists, believers who were of the conviction that the British slave trade had to stop. He also, at the same time, became a part of a prayer group that overlapped with these, these abolitionists. This prayer group was a... Uh, a group of faithful members of the Church of England 
But because they met off-site and they didn't meet in a church building, they were under great suspicion. This prayer group was called the Clapham Sect because that, that was the name of the house where they met. They were faithful members of the church, but deep men and women of prayer, and they changed the spiritual atmosphere over England. Our Friday night prayer meeting is a form of this Clapham sect. We meet and we pray, and we believe we're going to change the spiritual atmosphere over our city. Wilberforce was so moved by the prayers of this group and the, the Lord's touch on his heart that he worked for the abolition of slavery in, in the British Empire for 20 years. It took him 20 years for the parliament to pass the Slave Trade Act that ended the sale of human beings under the British flag, saying, well, what's the lesson here? Is Christians that are putting their hand to government and putting their, their hand to good government in their nation, we need to think bigger than four years at a time. Most believers don't think about government at all except every four years, and then they act like nothing else matters for about six months, and then they check out of it completely. We need sons and daughters who understand the role of government and morality and dedicate decades of their life to the greater good and the glory of God in our nation. So that perhaps our grandchildren, if the Lord tarries, inherit a different country than the one we are living in right now. Wilberforce said that what a difference it would be if our system of morality were based on the Bible instead of the standards devised by cultural Christians. He said, what would happen if people would give decades of their life to Christian service? It's so interesting. Our, our country is founded on, on a constitution, but our whole system of government is, is based on the idea of voting and on petition. Voting, revealing the desire of our heart and placing it on the table and saying, this is what we want, and petition, asking a higher power to address a concern, as if we were to go to the Supreme Court and ask them to address our need. Quit thinking of voting as pointless. What good does my one vote do? But voting is like a form of intercession. It says as much about you as anything. Christians, when they vote with their morality, actually work to fulfill Galatians 6.10. that says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Government is one of the functions that can do good for the whole. Now, it is rife with failure, it is rife with corruption, and it drastically needs the hand and the voice of God and the perspective of heaven. But I'm imploring you, vote, run for office if that is what the God has called you to do, or get involved. We've got to extend mercy to those who've been involved in abortion. We've got to value fathers. We've got to engage in government if we're going to change this. The fourth thing is the idea of developing a church culture of care. Now, I told you earlier that one of the commonalities of those who come to us over the years that are pregnant and unsure what to do was that a father was not involved at this point, be it the girl's father or the father of the child. There's just no father. If there's a second commonality, it's this. They feel like abortion is the only option they have. They think that's it. They literally think that no other person on the planet cares for them or would help them. And I want to give you uh, three different avenues of practical support. And there are others, but we'll just we'll hit these three really, really quickly. The first one, and you knew it was going to come to this, you know I was going to talk about adoption for a little bit this morning. One of the lies about people who choose abortion 
is that they lack love. How could you not love a baby? In most cases, that is not true. In most cases, they think they are making a loving choice in their mind. I'm not saying they're thinking correctly, but many of them believe that to abort the child would be better to bring it than to bring it into the world that they live in where it wouldn't have any support and it would have no one to care for it. To those women, when they make the choice to abort, in their way of thinking, in their confusion, they're thinking, this is love. For them to understand that someone would help raise their child for a better life than she could ever dream of giving them, that could change everything. They often come to the understanding that adoption isn't giving a baby up for adoption. We don't use that language. They're making a plan for adoption. They're being aggressive. It's not surrender. It's an aggressively loving thing for them to do. And often when they realize that that's an option, they understand that could make a difference. And I could let this baby live. When we were first meeting our older twins' birth mom, uh, they were already born. They were a day old. Their birth mom has some life controlling issues and, and she wasn't going to be allowed to parent at all. But even so, she kept saying, I don't know if I could do this. I don't know if I could make an adoption plan. And I finally told her, you have a chance to do something noble for your children. And that broke through the confusion and suddenly she saw that this could be an extension of love towards her own kids. And she made the adoption plan for Anna and Mercy. They are in our home because their birth mother loved them. Now, all of you have probably known of people who have waited a long time to adopt or they've tried and it just didn't work. And there's always the question, there's so many people who want to adopt. Is there really a need for people to adopt? Because adoption is booming. But yes, there is a need for good, solid Christian families to adopt. Because while there are many who are trying to adopt, not all families are equal. And if there are children to be cared for, how much better for them to be cared for people who understand eternity? Well, isn't it good just to get them in a home? I mean, why does faith even matter? Because we're not looking just to save a child from an abortion or an abusive situation simply to provide them with a bike and a bed and 70 good years before they go to the same hell that they may have gone to a, in, in another situation. No, no, we want to change the trajectory of their eternity. And that takes Christian families. I talk to people all the time and say, you know, yeah, boy, we'd adopt. Man, that could take that could take a year or a year and a half or two years. It takes nine months to do it biologically. Nothing happens instantly. And anything that matters takes time. Some of you, the Lord is going to call to adopt. Most of you probably not. But there may be some here that that's what the Lord is speaking to you. But for those who he is not speaking to about adoption, adoption is still an issue for you. And there's a couple things you can do. One, you can help someone financially who is adopting. The legitimate costs of adoption are high. And I know there's always a question that, you know, I, I paid the bill when I had children. Why should I help someone adopt? Nobody helped us when we had kids. Well, for one thing, oftentimes your insurance helped when you had your own biological children and insurance doesn't cover things like adoption. But second of all, the unborn are our responsibility. And so we kind of do share that load. And one way we can help is to help them financially. It's very expensive to adopt. Secondly, and long-term, way more important, 
is you can provide ongoing emotional and respite care for those kids. You know, we went through a season where we were, you know, I joke about it. We were serial adopters. We adopted a lot of children in a short period of time. I would not recommend it unless the Lord tells you to do it and the Lord tells you to do it. Don't do anything else. But at one point, I mean, you see us all get out of the van now and you chuckle. At one point, we had six kids, five and under. Zoe was five. Anna, Mercy, and Piper were three. And we brought Creed and Cadence home as newborns. Like that's what, that's how crazy things were at our house. I'll never forget the day we brought Creed and Cadence home. Uh, we went to get them thinking we'd be home in maybe a week and we were gone three weeks. It just took us forever. And, and our team of people came around and took care of our kids at home. And, and so everybody that helped while we were gone wanted to be there when these kids came home and our house was crammed full of people. I mean, I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking about 40 people were crammed into our house uh, to see these babies. And we walked in with these babies. They were all crammed into the foyer and it was awesome. It was glorious. Of those 40 people who were crammed in our home, you know how many of them are still regularly very active in our life? Just a handful. Just a handful. And I understand that, you know, lives change and people move, but, you know, God bless Bruce and Becky Jackman because they have stepped up and become surrogate family members and been incredibly helpful over the years to us. And there have been times where Becky just called and said, hey, I'll take the girls. And she's came and, and that has meant the world to our girls, but it's also meant the world to us. Befriend a family who is adopting and just come alongside them and say, how can I help? Maybe I can just bring soup. Maybe I can just, but help them. That's the adoption world. There is also foster care. Now, people confuse these things and they think that they're intermingled. They couldn't be more different. The foster care system and the adoption, private adoption system are completely disconnected and the two worlds don't mix. They don't even use the same courts. And with a few times they use the same words they use, they, they mean different things. Private adoption is always about placing a child in home permanently. Foster care is about caring for a child until the family is reunited if they can be. Now, sometimes adoption happens out of that because foster care, uh, sometimes those families can't be reunited but when adoption happens out of foster care, even then, uh, it's, it's because the system didn't kind of come together. That said, hospitality towards foster children is an extension of Jesus's heart. And it speaks volumes towards sending the message to our culture that children are valuable. We cannot say save the babies except for the ones that are born. Or we can't throw their mothers under the bus because they didn't have the resources that they told us they didn't have when we told them they should have their baby. Maybe you've got a heart to do this, but you're not in a life position where adoption or foster care is an option for you, but you want to get involved. There are still things you can do in the foster system to help. Your county, no matter where you live, is overwhelmed with foster children. It's just a fact. In our own county that we live in, foster care in the past five or six years has increased by 30%. And young, overworked, inexperienced, underpaid social workers sometimes have a hundred files on their desk. Think about that. 100 complex situations that they're supposed to speak into and advocate for. It's literally impossible. Every county has some variation of uh, the CASA system, CASA, C-A-S-A. -A. a CASA worker is a, a court-appointed special advocate. 
they volunteer and they're sworn officers of the court appointed by the juvenile court judge to advocate for children who are living in foster situations. So a casserole worker meets with these kids and talks with them, takes them out for ice cream, gets to know them. And when their case comes before the court, the CASA worker testifies as an authority over their life, and the judge will often take the recommendation of that CASA worker. Can you imagine if the primary voices speaking into those 100 files when they came to the court were primarily influenced by what the Holy Spirit was saying and what they knew? Like, how could that change the foster care system? So there's adoption, there is foster care, and finally there's orphan care. Now, there are very true uh, few orphans in the United States. Around the world, that's not true. There are thousands. And of those who are not true orphans, many of them are functional orphans. They're living on the street. They're in constant danger from the environment, from starvation, from predators, even from themselves. And in the next few weeks, we're going to learn a little bit more about uh, some friends of ours, Jimmy and Gina Horner. In 1987, Jimmy's parents owned a business in the Bay Area in California, and they became gripped with the plight of orphans in Mexico. And so you have to understand they weren't trained. They were, they were entrepreneurs, but they had no particular skill in, in social issues or, or ministry. They were ordinary people, but they were just surrendered to Jesus. Ordinary people who surrender to Jesus become remarkably dangerous. And as they felt the tug of God to work with these orphans, they sold their business, sold all they had, and moved to, Tar to Tijuana with no land, no financial backing, and they didn't speak Spanish. They got there and said yes to the value of life wherever they would find it, started caring for orphans in the dumps. Two years later, they started construction on their first orphanage. Since 1987, over 5,000 orphans have been rescued and loved and restored and passed on to adulthood through the mission. The network of homes and schools now that they started are run by their son, Jimmy, and their wife, uh, Ginny, who we know. And it has continued now almost their entire staff. They've got a staff of 110 in Mexico. Almost all of them are adults who grew up as orphans at the mission and now serve on staff and live in the community with their families. The mission is their family. Whatever rested on Jimmy's parents has come to rest on Jimmy, uh, Jimmy and his wife, because in recent years, they've expanded to Nicaragua and to Romania. We were with the Horners in New York City a year ago last April, and I, I asked them, I said, did you speak Romanian? I said, no, we'd never actually been to Romania before. We just felt it was on our heart. They go to Romania, they buy a factory that has been abandoned, and they're refurbishing it into a school and an orphanage. Apparently, boldness like this is hereditary. Pass it on to your kids. Now, the responses that we've talked about this morning are primarily long-term, things about valuing fatherhood and things about adoption and even foster care. Uh, but there's a short-term response, and we'll, we'll talk about this more in coming weeks. But I'm going to introduce you to the fruit of the Horner's labor, some of what has happened, some of the people who they have touched. And then we want to, as the bridge, we want to bless them and give sacrificially to the mission this Christmas so that orphans in Mexico and Nicaragua and Romania see packages that say from the bridge in Kansas City, and they wonder, wow, these people must love children. 
I talked to, to Jenny yesterday. She's in Romania. And I said, Jenny, what is the best thing we can do for you? Uh, I know that sometimes people ship packages, uh, people make things, people buy gifts. We, what's better, cash or gifts? Because we will do whatever is best for you. I don't want to do something that, that helps us uh, feel good, but, but doesn't fit the need. And she honestly said, if you can, can help with cash, we can convert that to gifts for Christmas far more easily than, than getting them shipped in. So I just want you to start praying about this idea of what can you give sacrificially to the mission in Mexico? Uh, and the way we're going to do this is probably by, by check. It would just uh, make it easier for our accounting. Checks that you write, uh, write them to, still write them to the Zoe Foundation. Uh, and, but let us know specifically, this is for the Christmas mission gift. And uh, probably December 5th or 6th, we want to mail this. So our time is kind of short. But be thinking about what you can do. What we do with our money speaks volumes about where our heart is. And if our heart is for life, then it's for life everywhere. And in giving sacrificially, even to this orphanage in Mexico, to kids that are in saying yes to life, we are saying something in the spirit about the land where we live. We're going to value life there. We're going to value life here. And if we can't, if we're not in a position to adopt, we're not in a position to do anything, we can do this even if it's small. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, a rating on the Apple Podcast app is super helpful. Hope that you have a great day and we will be back next week with the third cup of coffee.
Thanks for listening to the third cup of coffee. If you would like to connect with us more closely, go to thebridgekc.church. Thebridgekc.church. We'll see you next week.